So the, the, the name of this Sunday school class, I think, if I remember correctly, <laughs> is Vintage Faith. But the topic is um, the Second London Baptist Confession. So the point of this class is for us to discuss the confession that we as a church subscribe to. So the idea for this class is that we will start today with an intro, and then every week that the class is meeting, uh, we will be covering one chapter of the London Baptist Confession. So we'll be going through that chapter uh, and what that chapter is talking about in greater detail. So today, um, I want to say my quote-unquote philosophy of teaching. I say that as if I've been teaching for years. This is a relatively new thing for me. But what I kind of aim for for myself when I'm studying and preparing is more of this idea of if we're in an intro class like this, let's say we were studying the, the chapters like next week. That's a little different because it's a little more pointed. It's a little more guided. It's like it's laid out for you. You're breaking it down. But for an intro class like this or something a little more topical, I like to approach it as if I'm learning it for the first time. Or, or if those that you, uh, those of you are who are here listening, I'm just going to assume you know nothing, right? So, for some of for some of you, this may be review. For some of you, it may be all new. But I'm going to hopefully uh, approach it from the perspective all we're, we're all kind of approaching this for the first time together because um, I think that's the most helpful way to do it. So, so to start us off, today we're going to be talking about why we are confessional. So that's how we're going to set up the class. That's how we're going to start. Um, I didn't want to spend too much time on the confession itself or the contents of the confession because there will be 32 weeks where every week we're discussing a new chapter. So I kind of wanted to back up just a little bit and talk about creeds and confessions in general. And then why in the world should we as a church have a confession why should we as church members or the church body care about our church having a confession? What does it actually mean? Um, and, and how it actually impacts us as the body of Christ and as a, as a church. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll start us off with prayer and then we'll, we'll sort of get into it. Um, God, thank you so much for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you that um, we have this body of believers here um, I think I'm thankful for the freedom that we have to come together, to congregate, to, to worship you together, to study your word together, to uh, glorify you and pursue you together. I thank you for the opportunity that we have in a Sunday school setting to uh, dive deeper into your word, and particularly in this class and over the next few weeks and months, um, dive into a resource. It's, it's an extra biblical resource, but a very powerful and helpful resource nonetheless. Um, I'm excited to see what you'll teach us through it. Uh, just open our hearts and minds this morning to what it is that you would, you would show us. Um, be with the pastor this morning that's preaching. Uh, give him the words. Uh, help your words to be heard. Help us to be ready to receive whatever that is. Just thank you again for loving us first. Uh, we pray this all in your name. Amen. So first of all, I wanted to start, like I said, if we're all kind of jumping in this together. I want to talk about real quickly or ask a question. What is a creed or confession? And are those things different? Are creeds and confessions the same thing? Do they differ in some way? If they do, how so? Anybody have any thoughts on that 
as we get started this morning. I'd say a creed is probably a form of confession, um, but they're typically shorter, mm-hmm. and they you know they uh, they don't go into as much detail. Yeah, um, they're typically used for uh, quick memorization, um, so that in any particular situation, you know, let's say you're pre you're um, you're witnessing to someone, you can remember all the points. Oh, mm-hmm. there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Son was raised on, you know, was born of a virgin, raised on the third day, died, uh, buried, raised again. Yeah. Sits at the right hand of the Father, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. Um, but then the confessions would get a lot further into um, some of the details of all of those things. Exactly. So how many of you are familiar with um, a particular creed? Does any particular creed come to mind? Mm-hmm. Which one? The Nicene Creed, the, on the, right the one that we just did on, yeah. uh, on Christology. So there's, you said the Nicene Creed? Yeah. And I'm going to leave off creed because it's, you know, something yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> The Apostles' Creed. Um, Another one that tends to be um, relevant or attached to um, the Reformed tradition is the um, Athanasian Creed. Mm -hmm. So these are just a few examples of some common creeds that the church has held to over its history. so then back to my question then, we have these creeds. Are those the same as, or, or are they separate or different from quote-unquote confessions? So I think Damien talked about that a little bit. So we would say they are distinctly different, not in a way that's, it's just helpful to know how they differ because you'll hear somebody talk about the Nicene Creed or you'll hear somebody talk about the Westminster Confession. Those are both helpful extra-biblical resources, but they're not one-to-one the same thing. So, on this side, we'll just put some of the common confessions. I'm sorry, this marker is... This marker is weak and my handwriting is atrocious. So, some common confessions. We'll just start with the one we're talking about. We'll talk about the second London Baptist. That's the one we're talking about in this class. There's the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. There's the the Belgic. There's, I forget exactly what it's called, but there was a conference at Osberg. I think it's Osberg something. (laughs) Um, But those are some examples of some confessions. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about that is just one for myself, like I said, when we're sort of visiting this topic, when we talk about our confession, we want to make sure that we understand as a body and as a group of um, believers that have this in common, that it's, those are distinctly different from the creeds. In the early centuries of the church, I'm going to refer to my notes a lot, by the way, because I did a lot of research um, and didn't quite 
make enough time to concise it down. So I'll probably be reading from my screen a lot. Um, in the early centuries of the church, creeds were intended to be recited in public. So kind of going back to what you were saying, almost like a, a version of catechism or uh, a way of memorizing core truths about, you know, the, the realities of the Christian life so that we have it on our hearts so we can share with others. They were often recited in public worship. Sometimes even today they still are. And they're public professions of faith in God the Father, his son Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. And over time, in order to combat specific heresies of the time, these creeds were added to or they were amended or they were revised over time as different uh, schools of thought popped up and different heresies emerged and things like that. They would be tweaked. So the, the, actually the Christology Sunday school class that we were in that statement by Ligonier Ministry on who Christ is, in preparing for that, Damien and I and Jeremy and somebody else actually realized that there was actually more than one versions of that statement. Uh, I think it was originally written in 2015, and I think they revised it in 2016. There was some, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But there was some sort of um, conversation in modern evangelicalism reform circles about a certain topic and they felt that they felt compelled to edit it just slightly, mm -hmm. right? To sort of combat that um, particular thought or that particular heresy. Um, so what I thought was interesting was in my research, the way that a lot of other uh, thinkers, I'm not categorizing myself as a thinker, but uh, commentators, thinkers, theologians, they, they talk about creeds as a pledge of allegiance. And it's a pledge of allegiance to the Trinity itself. So I thought that was really interesting. And so, and, and the reason I bring this up, you might be asking, okay, this is a class about uh, spe a specific confession or confessions in general, why you're talking about creeds. Again, I think it's helpful to know the difference. And I love the way that this was broken down uh, as I was preparing for this. So most of these creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, and to an extent, the Athanasian Creed, these were all early, early centuries of the church but they were public professions of faith in the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So as we move into confessions, the way that you can think about this, the way that I thought it was helpful to break it down, and we'll get into this in just a second, is that the creeds talk more about who in whom we believe, whereas confessions talk about the what of what we believe. And that's just sort of my own way of breaking it down in my own head. So. If the creeds are about in whom we believe, we believe in, they're almost always explicitly Trinitarian. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The confessions are a much broader statement about what we believe. So while these things are um, uh, similar, they also have somewhat distinct purposes. So, so then what is a confession? A confession is a written formal statement that acknowledges, declares, and gives evidence of religious beliefs. It's more of a Webster's dictionary <laughs> definition. Um, so like I said, fundamentally, um, the creeds were early church. Um, they were very, um, they were used as, as, you know, they were cited in public worship. They were part of early church liturgy. Confessions came more later in history they most frequently came from the, the Reformation period, which started in, you know, most uh, uh, commentators or theologians sort of start the Reformation around the time of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. So that's where most of these confessions happen from that point on, right? Some as early as 1517, 
uh, or, or about that time period into the 1600s and 1700s. And then there are even more modern confessions um, as well. <clears throat> so in contrast to creeds, the confessions offer a greater length and specificity, and they, and they deal more often with local issues and concerns, and they express distinctive beliefs of Christian groups or denominations writing them. So in that way, right, um, they are in some way localized to either communities or denominations. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a particularly Presbyterian document. Like, that is, that is a standard by which anybody ordained in the Presbyterian Church has to agree to. It is a particularly Presbyterian document. The one that we hold to, the second one, the Baptist, is a particularly Baptist document. Why do I say that? We'll get into this, but even though the Second London Baptist Confession was actually derived from the Westminster, it made the point of clarification on baptism. Huh? Right? So in that way, it is a particularly Baptist document. And I mean that uh, not so much in the way that we think of Baptist as a denomination, right. right? Though there are Baptist churches now, that denomination does use that. But I don't mean it in that sense. I mean like in the sense of I'm a Baptist um, as opposed to somebody who is more traditionally uh, paid a Baptist. Yeah, you're not saying Southern Baptist. I'm not saying Southern Baptist or North American Baptist. I'm saying <clears throat> if you believe in believer's baptism as opposed to what traditionally Reformed Presbyterians believe, that's what I mean by Baptist. Would somebody read real quick um, 1 Timothy 3.16? Do you have a question? I'm going to I'm going to pause real quick. I have a question. I, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I missed, she said something to me, and I missed a statement that I feel is important um, for where we're at, where we're yeah. moving forward from. Did I hear you say that the Second London Baptist Confessional is uh, based off of? I forget the way you said it. Or I think I misunderstood the way you said it. Based off of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think like I used the word that, that one came. The Westminster came first. This yes. one came second, and it came second as a clarification on. Exactly. In particular, okay. Absolutely. So I use the word derived. I don't oh, know if that's yeah. the right word to use, but yes. Okay. The, the Westminster Confession not only came first in history, but it was actually the model, and we'll get we'll cover this a little more too, for another confession. Okay. And then the Baptists came along and refined that even further and called theirs the London Baptist Confession. So oh. there are some ways in which this differs, but it is very much similar in the same as the Westminster. Okay. They hold a lot uh, in similarities. All right, who has First Timothy three sixteen? Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So the reason I wanted to highlight this, and we'll cover this a little bit more. Vindicated. It's a common question when we start talking about confessions, the purpose of them, the why of them. A very common question and a very appropriate question is, why confession if we have the Bible? And we'll get into that. So I don't quote this verse. This isn't, a, this, isn't a, this verse, the reason I wanted to bring this up, was not as a proof text to say, hey, this is exactly why we need confessions. This isn't, this isn't a one-to-one -one proof of, or evidence of something. The reason I brought it up, though, is that we see patterns of confession all throughout Scripture. 
And if I had more time, I would have brought more examples. But as you can see here in this letter to Timothy, they're literally confessing and they, they spell it out. The author of this letter probably already knows this, right? It's already on their heart and mind, but it's said anyway, it's confessed out loud. So the reason I wanted to bring that up is we see patterns of creed, we see patterns of confession even in scripture, and that the confessions themselves are proclamations of the gospel and of scriptures. We'll get to that later. All right, I'm gonna move on because I got here late, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so then why are we confessional? Why is it important for us um, as a body, as a church body, um, an organized group of believers, why is it important for us to have a confession, to hold to a confession? Why would we want a confession? Um, and before I get into that, I'd love to know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Is, is there anything that you already know of or that sticks out in your mind? How, how would holding to or subscribing to a particular confession be helpful? In order for a church to have unity, there has to be agreement and consistency on what it is they believe as a body. Yeah. Um, if, you know, sometimes you get... There, there's there's place for range of thought, but if it goes too, uh, too on the willy-nilly, then, then there's a potential for uh, a chaotic structure of the church. Mm -hmm. What else? It prevents us from being um, tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. You know, it allows us to um, <clears throat> be tied to certain truths that yes. if we can remember them in the confessions, we can also use those confessions to bring us to the scriptures that they specifically talk about. Because typically with a confession, you'll also have the cross-references mm -hmm. to what scriptures they're talking about. Exactly. Um, so it's um, it's kind of a, a biblical theology of, of sorts that, you know, distills the whole Bible down into, into um, its individual thoughts so mm -hmm. that you can, well rest in your in your knowledge of the scripture mm. it also brings unity yeah unity to the body and to the direction mm. which they go yeah absolutely I think it also um, clarifies where we stand as a body but especially like somebody who's searching for a place to worship and they want to know what are these people all about? It, I mean, it certainly clarifies where we stand on it. You guys are hitting all my points. <laughs> any other any other thoughts? That's great. Thank you, Ken. We've used it here as a teaching tool mm -hmm. for children. Mm -hmm. I mean, even as children, so. Yeah. It also confirms for us what we don't believe, mm -hmm. specifically. We're saying this. We are not saying this, because uh, you know things can get off the rails if you if you don't define words properly. You know, if you're not on the same page with well, this word means specifically this. It does not mean this. Yeah. Then you can you can get your theology. In. It can be incorrect. It you know it might not be a, a point of of uh, breaking fellowship, but. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, it it gives you this um, 
fence to stay within. Yeah. Guardrails. Yeah, yeah guardrails. Yeah, that's a great, great analogy. Um, one of the things that I pray for often whenever I have the opportunity to, to be in a Sunday school class or to, to talk about these things is one of the things I pray for most often is that is I pray for clarity. And not because I want that to reflect well on me. I, I pray for clarity. I pray for spirit-giving clarity because words matter. And words mean things. And they, they mean some things or they don't mean other things. And um, there's a greater burden on teachers. And I don't, I like, as a member of our body, as a member of church leadership, I don't want to communicate even unintentionally some falsehoods. So one of the, like you said, these words matter. And so the confessions are made up of words, just like we learned in the Christology study, it's almost as important or more important to have these denials as it is to have these affirmations. So in that way, these confessions are helpful. And I actually loved your example of teaching the children because, you know, that act that actually is very common, say in the Presbyterian church as well. You've got the Westminster Confession of Faith and they've turned that into the larger and shorter catechism. It's literally a way for us to memorize these great truths of Scripture and of the faith in a way that's easily digestible, in a way that sticks in our hearts and minds. And like you said, and we'll get to this more, is it points us back to Scripture. So if I haven't said that plainly, if you haven't heard that already, let me say that again. Scripture should be memorized. It should be on our hearts and minds. The confessions are not a replacement for Scripture. And, and I'll say this again at the end. The scriptures are our final authority. And if you want to use this language, think about them this way. The confessions submit to scripture. Mm -hmm. They are submitted to, they're rooted in scripture. They submit to scripture. Nobody here is suggesting that you should go, and if you only have the time, learn the confessions over the over scripture. I mean, if you don't, if you have very limited time, the confessions are helpful. But in no way are we saying that the confessions supersede scripture. Our guiding light, so to speak is scripture. That is the revealed word of God. So if that hasn't been abundantly clear, I just wanted to say that. But we, but the confessions are still particularly helpful. So, um, but I like that example because um, we've started using the uh, shorter catechism in our, in our house as well. So the confessions um, are just really powerful and, and really helpful. So, um, so I'm going to go through some of these points. You guys actually brought up a lot of these points and I'm thankful for that so that none of this None of this should be a huge surprise, and hopefully it makes sense. And please, at any point, um, I, I get nervous when I talk, so I just tend to keep rambling. So if you have questions, just raise your hand or just interrupt or whatever. Um, otherwise, I'll literally just keep trucking. Um, but somebody kind of said this. Alan, I think you said guardrails, and I like that. Um, one of the ways that I thought about it was that confessions are... They're guardrails, and there's a point later that I can expound more upon that, but in a similar thought or analogy, confessions are like maps from our forefathers. They help, they help, about to combine the words guide and direct. They guide and direct us. Um, as a part of the larger Catholic Church, and again, to be clear, when I say the larger Catholic Church, I mean the lowercase c Catholic and not the uppercase c Catholic. Um, as part of the larger universal church, the body of Christ. When we subscribe to a confession, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history to inform our doctrine. So when we subscribe to a confession, we are holding to these great truths that men 2,000 years ago have already thought about. Um, and we get to essentially stand on their shoulders in that way. 
Um, many of the fruits of that history are expressed in the confessions. The other thing is it, it protects us from repeating the errors of the past, right? So there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, every new heresy that, that kind of comes up in the church these days is really just a reworded or remarketed uh, version of an old heresy. There's basically nothing new under the sun in that regard. So um, we also have a responsibility as church leaders and as members of the church to each other is to protect the truth and defend the gospel. Um, if we don't educate each other, if, the, if church leaders don't educate their congregants, if we as believers don't educate each other, um, we are vulnerable to essentially ancient and repackaged heresies. And so the confessions are a really great way of protecting us from that. Uh, in another sense, confessions distill the wisdom of spirit-filled Bible interpreters such as Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Martin Luther, Cranmer, Andrew Fuller. All that to say, all these men have gone before us, men that have spent countless hours, months, years studying the Word, diving into the Word, thinking about the Word, praying through it, letting, them, letting the, the Spirit reveal new things to them. All that time that they spent is packaged in these confessions. And so that is really helpful to us. Clarifying um, something, because words do matter. Yeah, please. That they were illuminated by illuminated, the Spirit rather than revealed. Because right. it was already fully revealed. It was already fully revealed. Thank you. Okay. Words matter. Thank you. It was already fully revealed, but it was illuminated to them. Uh, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses commands Israel to teach the next generation. And in Acts 2.42, we see that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So again, we're not, we're not um, one-to-one saying that some of these early church fathers are apostles, but, but essentially by incorporating historic confessions into our church life, we express our belief that the church receives, defends, and continues to hand down the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was taught by him and his apostles. So there's that sort of connection we have to the past that's really helpful. Confessions are affirmations and, and the defense of the truth. Again, we're still talking about why have a confession, right? Um, would somebody read 1 Timothy 3.15? If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar of buttress and buttress of the truth. So if the, ch the church of the living God is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, then the point of the confessions or the benefit of the confessions is that it helps us protect the truth. It affirms things, it denies things, and it helps us have a proper understanding of the gospel and of scripture and helps us defend the truth. Um, as I mentioned before, I think I repeated myself here. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it says that we want to make sure that the God's truths are on our hearts. Uh, it says that we want to, we should diligently teach ourselves and our children. Um, the spent time uh, in the New Testament in Acts, it talks about abiding in the apostles' teaching. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, it talks about shepherd teachers and how they have a responsibility to convey truths to their children. Um, so again, confessions are affirmations and defense of the truth. So they are in incredibly important. Confessions help promote unity. Uh, I think somebody said it earlier, but I'd like to hear it again. Kevin, maybe you did. How do confessions 
Maybe it was Devin. I don't know. Kev, con- confessions promote unity. How do the confessions promote unity? It was Devin. It was Devin. Uh, it. Uh, on one hand, there's a church that can both. They can. I think someone else said that uh, it informs people that come in what we believe, and they can then, in turn, determine whether they believe it or not. And um, we can confirm that between one another. And you know, uh, the Bible says something like, "How can two walk together unless they agree?" So, I mean, yeah, you don't agree on anything, but the important theological points that form and shape a church, um, if we agree upon them, then we can therefore have unity with one another. Yeah. I love that satisfactory. That's great. Promote unity. They provide a set of standards around which we can all come together and to which we can all agree. So if it provides a standard for which we all agree in the context of this local church, it promotes unity. Um, this, was a, this was a quote from somebody that I thought was helpful. Um, confessions, as what they call a consensus document, they intentionally employ moderate language in moderate terms. The creeds and confessions promote the unity of the church by allowing for a diversity of opinion in regard to specific doctrines or the way those doctrines are expressed. This eliminates uh, needless disputes in the church over minor points of doctrine and reminds us that unity is not uniformity. Some doctrines are of fundamental importance in the church, while others are not. By allowing for some diversity of opinion, creeds and confessions unite Christians around fundamental doctrine while giving them some measure of freedom in secondary or tertiary matters. So kind of going back to that guardrail, Alan, and kind of this, this idea of, uh, maybe somebody said it, of offense. It provides the guardrails, it provides the boundaries, and yet also provides freedom. You can play inside the fenced area, you just can't go beyond the fence. So uh, some doctrines are of fundamental importance and others are not. So by allowing, uh, by having these fences in place, it does allow for some diversity or opinion, particularly on secondary and tertiary uh, matters but on the matters of fundamental doctrine, we are all aligned and agree, and that's what the confessions provide. They provide that boundary. Any questions there? Confessions ensure peace and unity, or excuse me, peace and purity. You already covered unity. First, they provide a standard to which all church officers and all church teaching must conform. So I think that's really helpful. That's not only a protection for, say, those that are teaching or those in church leadership. It provides protection for all of us. Mm -hmm. So that you know, I think as Kevin said, as somebody's looking for a church to join or to be a part of, um, a community to be involved in, when when you have that confession, it's a really helpful source of information you know you quote unquote know what you're getting into right um and so in that way that is that is a boon to us as individual congregation members because it is a protection for us we come into this church and we know that there's some guardrails in place we know what's going to be taught it's also helpful for somebody like myself or for any of the other uh, preachers teachers pastors is that they know the guardrails right so the confessions provide that standard uh, to which they must conform, and it provides guidance and direction for their teaching, right? 
They also provide, excuse me, proactively establish a benchmark for all teaching that will take place in the church. Since confessions are public records of what the church believes, they provide every person in their midst a statement of doctrine on the front end. Every person will therefore know not only what to expect from the teaching they will receive, but also the expectations in regard to the teaching that they will provide. Uh, creeds and confessions bring all this out into the open. There should be no hidden surprises. Um, and then this is kind of a minor point. I'm going to kind of fly through it because we still have more to cover. Um, is that one of the ways that it ensures peace and purity is that they provide a standard by which to resolve conflict. So in matters of, let's say, church polity or even church discipline, there is a guardrail there that the confessions provide that make it easier to sort of wade through those waters. So when an issue comes up, particularly around doctrine, right, particularly around issues of doctrine, uh, the confessions are a very helpful, again, extra biblical, but a very helpful resource um, when we're wading through those waters and trying to determine how best to resolve um, a certain conflict, again, particularly around um, doctrine. Um, I think we already covered this. The confessions provide protection. Um, another way that they provide protection is they, they limit the um, authority of church and church leaders. No rogue minister or church officer can impose his will concerning any number of matters relating to the Christian life because the church's creed or confession itself limits what can be imposed on its members. The church, uh, governed by no creed but the Bible, may respond to these kinds of situations in the same way a confessional church would, but the members of that church don't have the same assurances and protections uh, that the con uh, confessional congregation does because creeds and confessions protect people from the abuses and errors in regards to church authority and the way that it is imposed on them. So it's kind of a wordy thing. So one of the things I took from that is, going back to my question at the beginning, right? If, if we have scripture, you know, why confessions? What do, we, what do we do or what do we say to somebody who says, I have no creed but Christ, or I have no, I have no authority but the Bible, right? Um, what is the, what's the danger there? Um, the creed, no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible sounds good, but let's ask the question of is it good or is it, or is it the best way to, mm -hmm. to phrase or to frame what you're trying to say? You become your own uh, interpreter. Absolutely. Leaning on your own understanding. Absolutely. So let me ask the question then, just to not to play devil's advocate, but to like flesh this out really logically. Should we all be studying the Bible? Yes. Should we all be reading it? Yes. Should we, with the Spirit's help, should we take the things we learn from the Bible and apply them to our own lives? Yes. Right? So no one's saying that you can't read the Bible or that it has to be through, you know, thanks to a church leader. You know, back in the back in early church history where you literally had to have somebody read it for you, right? So that all that's important. But to exactly to what Carissa said, what happens then is if you don't have something like a creed or confession, it is up to the person reading or interpreting. They become the arbiter of what's true or not. Does that make sense? So it's like the scripture says what it says, but how it's interpreted is left up to them. That may often be right. It may often be wrong. It depends on the person that's reading that scripture. If I may interject, I thought to see that, grow up, see that in action, um, where I grew up, they had a church constitution, which was basically about the, a very loose confession. 
But uh, the victory, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Either. My old church did uh, well by comparison to many I knew, but oftentimes it's more of a decoration on the wall. And so the emphasis is on the preacher to get a word from the Holy Spirit. To, and um, having been in churches that where their congregation didn't know the, uh, I guess, Constitution or whatever it was, um, it be it would be very clear if, if you become the interpreter, as I said, that uh, a lot of times when a young man would come up and pray and say the word, whatever they'd say would very much contradict what was taught in the Bible or laid out in that loose confession, mm -hmm. and uh, it was often rejoiced over, or you know, for the the fact that the young man said that he followed the Spirit and times that, and so I mean. Um, if you if you are quote unquote truly following the spirit, and, you know, that's in the uh, uh God's not going to contradict His word. So, oftentimes it ends up being one's own impulses or emotions or ideas that are imposed upon the sermon rather than the word itself. Yeah. What it helps prevent is a cult of personality. Having a confession in place it puts that helpful standard in place, right? So what I see often is I have family and friends in you know, other denominations, some of them very charismatic, and I'm not picking on charismatics, but maybe I'm a little bit. Um, when they don't have a confession, you know, and again, when they say, we, have, we, all, we just have the Bible. We just have the Bible. And that sounds really good, and the Bible is really important, and the Bible, like I said, the scriptures are our ultimate authority. Absolutely. So in that sense, we agree. But when we don't have that guardrail in place, when you don't have something like the confession to set a standard, right, it becomes the, the pastor's sort of personality that drives engagement in the church. If the personality, the church, sorry, slow down, the pastor's personality that takes over. It's his interpretation of scripture. It's what he thinks about it that permeates the hearts and minds of the people in the church. Then what happens when that pastor leaves? They bring in a new pastor, well, guess what? People feel lost, they feel directionless, unless that pastor that comes in is, a, is almost a direct clone of said previous pastor, right? He brings his own flavor, his own whatever. And now granted, Ryan has his own style of flavor of preaching, right? He has his own way of communicating. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is if you don't have something like a, conf a confession that sort of acts as the foundation for the things that are taught or talked about, uh, you don't have it as a foundation for interpreting scripture, um, you're opening yourself up to danger. You're opening yourself up to have a sort of a cult of personality that comes less about the scriptures themselves and more about how the pastor interprets those scriptures. You're about to say something. Have you ever been reading and thought, oh, wow, I never saw that before. But it was something, then you found out afterwards it was completely false. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, Doug used to say, if you find something in Scripture <laughs> after you're studying it and nobody's ever thought about it before, you're probably wrong. <laughs> um, and so that's where standing on the shoulders of all of these godly men who thought very deeply and were not just by themselves, but they were with hundreds of other people who were also praying and thinking very deeply and you know, considering that words matter and um, all of the doctrines of the church up till that point um, 
those those it's not just a guardrails. It's it's a I know because of what I understand from the confessions, which points me to the scriptures, that this is what it means. And if I see that, wait a minute, this seems to contradict, it's not a problem with the scriptures. It's a problem with my understanding of those scriptures. Whereas if you don't have that, you can say, well, this contradicts, so therefore there's contradictions in the Bible, and therefore the Bible is not trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, it can get off the rails really quickly. Um, being alone in your um, study, in your understanding, in your um, formation of your theology is dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why we weren't all just taken out of here the moment we became believers. We were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but okay, but we're still here. And that's because we're here to bring other people into the fold. We're here to teach other people. You know, we're here to be part of the body of Christ. If we rely upon ourselves and ourselves only, we will go into error. So then real quickly here, I want to be mindful of our time. I want to end on time, make uh, make our children's ministry volunteers happy. Um, so let's move into really quick. So we've kind of covered um, why we're confessional or why a church should have one or why we have one. Um, and I want to spend just a, just a few minutes uh, on the, the Baptist con- London Baptist Confession itself. Um, any questions though real quick before we move on? Any other like thoughts or questions about why we as a church have a confession or why we as a church believe a church should have one? Anything? Um, Okay, so the Second London Baptist Confession. um, This is a classic Baptist summary of faith. Um, It's called the Second London Baptist uh, Confession. Does anybody know why? Because there was one that came before it. It's literally the second one. Right on the nose. Um, So... Uh, this was written in 1677 and was formally adopted in 1689. So you'll often hear this confession called the London Baptist Confession. You'll hear it called the Second London Baptist Confession. You might hear it called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, all those names are kind of referring to this one particular document. It's the one that was adopted in 1689. Um, and as I said before, it is actually, so the Westminster Confess, Confession of Faith came first. As I said, that is a particularly Presbyterian document that was born, originated in the Presbyterian Church. Um, There were a group of believers called the Congregationalists that then took that document, they refined it, they reformed it a little. They called it the Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order. Um, That is a, um, for my quick research, is a um, statement of faith slash confession that isn't really used anymore. It's not really around. Um, but from that, the Baptists of the time took that declaration, modified it slightly, and that is where we actually get the Second London Baptist Confession, which is the confession that we hold to. Um, so to give you a little, a little bit of insight, and I'm going to read this really quickly. This is a very comprehensive confession. It is very robust. And I'm just going to give you, um, real quickly, I'm going to run you through the 32 chapters, just the names of them, so that you can see like how robust this document is and what it actually covers, because I think this is really 
not only important, but really, really cool that we have something like this. So chapter 1 through 32, I'll just start in one order. Of the Holy Scriptures, of God and the Holy Trinity, of God's decree, of creation, of divine providence, of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof, of God's covenant, Christ the mediator, free will, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance unto life and salvation, good works, the perseverance of the saints, the assurance of grace and salvation, the law of God, the gospel and the extent of grace thereof, Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience, religious worship and the Sabbath, lawful oaths and vows, the civil magistrate, marriage, the church, communion of saints, baptism in the Lord's Supper, baptism of the Lord's Supper, the state of man after death and the resurrection of dead, and the last judgment. So these are the individual chapter headings, titles, that this statement covers. So it is a very robust uh, confession. Uh, it covers a lot of ground and provides a really great framework for us to operate in, in our church. Now, like we said before, these are some of the things that we sort of consider foundational, right? One of the things you may notice is missing is eschatology. There's no stance on eschatology here. Eschatology is, is generally regarded as a sort of a secondary issue, right? Um, there are certain views there that can, that can fit in our church. We have the sort of freedom to uh, talk about that and disagree on that. But at the end of the day, it's not primary. The primary things are the, the things that we've, we've discussed here, right? The Holy Scriptures, getting that right is pretty important, right? Getting the Trinity right is pretty important. Getting eschatology right, getting the end times right, important, but not as much as who God is, right? Um, so there's a lot that's covered here. Um, I'm actually really excited for this class. I'm really ex excited for the following weeks because we're, like I said, we're going to dive into each one of these chapters um, individually. And as we said before, this document, this confession submits itself to scripture, right? The way that this confession and the individual chapters break down not only these topics, but how they're talked about in scripture um, is pretty incredible. So one of the reasons why I have loved studying this document for myself is because of how much it pushes you back into the word, right? We all have a love for the word. We as believers, the, again, the, the, the word of God, the revealed word of God is our guiding light. It is uh, the thing that we trust and hold on to. It is our anchor. Um, and this document, though extra biblical, roots itself in scripture, points us back to scripture. And so in studying this, you know, it's, it hasn't taken me out of scripture. It's not like I'm not in scripture because I'm in the confession. It has pushed me to the scripture even more, which is something that I have loved so much about studying this. So I'm really excited. Yeah, good. Um, so you know how the Westminster larger catechism, shorter catechism, yeah. they have catechisms and yeah. question and answer. Yeah. Um, is there something like that for the London Baptist, where there's like a concise question and answer kind of catechism? Wasn't the New City Catechism based on the London Baptist? I believe Baptist? so. Yeah. So obviously there's... Oh, I thought it was the Westminster. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was oh. Yeah, so then the Westminster Confession has its larger, shorter... I want to say, as, as your husband said, that when Crossway put out the New City Catechism, it yeah. was based on the, yeah. this particular confession. Um, and again, that the, probably the... The, for the purposes of this class, I would say the biggest difference, again, is goes down to baptism. Yep. 
the contents of those confessions, the where they end up on certain topics, these topics that we listed, it's almost it's almost identical mm-hmm. in in most ways. Again, the biggest difference, say, between Westminster for the purposes of class, the biggest difference, at least in my mind, between the London Baptist and the Westminster is just on the topic of baptism. Um, so yeah. So again, I don't know. Dave, I think we have maybe a few more minutes. I was here when the church or, or when the elders selected this document to subscribe to. Um, have I missed anything as to why our church specifically chose this 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 confession? Had I missed anything there? I think that um, it was it was simply the best out of all of the confessions that lined up with our beliefs. Right. Um, I mean, even there's some things in the London Baptist that we don't necessarily. Yeah, yeah we're not really sure about that one. But yeah. in those places, we've clarified. Yeah, you know, we um, if you if you look at the London Baptist. Um, annotated version that we have on our website, you'll see all of those points where the elders went through every single part, point of it, and said, yeah, we, this is right, this is right. This needs some redefinition. You know, if it's talking about this, we agree. If it's talking about this, we disagree. Um, so it was, it was just the best that we could yeah. find at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, I hope this has been helpful. It's helpful for me to sort of break this down from a you know, I talk to me like I'm five. Hopefully it came off that way. But um, as to sort of the differences between creeds and confessions, why in the world they're important, why our church chose this particular confession. And again, I want to end with this, um, and I'll just read it for time. But this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You probably know it. Um, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So again, I, I just wanted to end with that to say, we want to make no mistake. Um, we want to be very clear, use our words clearly, um, that the confession is a very helpful extra-biblical resource, and it points to Scripture, is rooted in Scripture, and, and therefore we subscribe to it. But at the end of the day, it isn't scripture it isn't inspired in the way that scripture was inspired therefore scripture is our final authority and if i could encourage you it would to be as to spend as much time in the scriptures themselves as you can and use the confession as a helpful guide as you're studying so well that's that's another thing because the confessions have all of the cross references Mm -hmm. it's a great way to direct your study of the scripture read the confession, look at the points, and then go look at the actual scriptures, you know, and see if you agree. Yeah. And just for me, like, personally, too, that's great, because I've done, that has, how I've sort of approached um, this class, but also, there, I think there's, at least for me, there's something really cool when when I'm studying the word, and then you have this this confession as a helpful tool, is just to think about how connected we are to our, our Christian forefathers. I think to me there's just, and maybe that doesn't weigh as much on you as it does me, but there's something where it's like connecting back to those early church fathers, studying the same word, the same word was available to them all those years ago, right? And the, th- the things that they're seeing and reading in scripture that they're wrestling through, we're, we're wrestling through now, but 
we have the benefit of seeing their thought and how they interpret it. And we have this benefit of 2,000 years of the church and these councils providing godly men to interpret this scripture and come together and to say conclusively together, this is what we believe the scriptures say. There's just something in my mind really powerful about having that just in the background. We have 2,000 years of church history um, behind us as we read the something scriptures. Something that resonated with me when I first started reading Bill and the Baptist was, you know, it brings organization to, uh, I guess, the entire Bible and its truths because, I mean, there's so many different scripture references for God's holiness, you know, and the attributes and character of God. But when you have that, and you, and I like how they put it because it's almost like they take excerpts from each of these scriptures and put it together into one explanation. Yeah. And then you've got all the ref different references that it comes from. And so it kind of orders your thinking and it orders, you know, your, your understanding of each of these points. Yeah. It's a systematic theology. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes the entire scripture into account. Yeah. The only way that you can take the entire scripture into account is that you get a bunch of people who know the scripture because the only body who knows everything is everybody, right? And if you've got a bunch of godly men who study the scripture, you're going to have, you know, 30 of them over here who've studied this book, but what about this book? Well, you need more than that, right? And so all of these people together were able to come up with a real strong systematic um, uh, theology. You know, uh, when we talk about biblical theology, we're talking about an individual book. Right? What does this book mean? How is this book um, explaining something? What is the point that the author's trying to make? But when, when we're talking about a systematic theology, we're saying, okay, how does all of Scripture talk about this particular point? And like you said, if we're you know, wanting to see the nature of God, what are his attributes, well, yeah. this helps. Well, I'll pray for us real quick so we can get out on time. But if you have any other thoughts or questions, concerns, snide remarks, I will, I'll stick around if you want to <laughs> share this. Um, God, thank you so much for today. I appreciate um, uh, the way in which the, our early church fathers have laid out this document for us. God, I'm so thankful for this resource. I'm thankful first and foremost for scripture. I'm thankful for how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. I'm thankful that we have it. It's written down. It's here for us, uh, and it's readily available. We just thank you so much for the blessing that that is. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you, for, thank you for sending your son to uh, die on the cross in our place, God, to take on our sin, pay the penalty of our sin, um, to bear your wrath towards us, God. Thank you that we've been forgiven, that we've, we've been redeemed. Um, as I said earlier, God, just be with uh, whoever's preaching this morning. Uh, help us to be um, ready to receive what it is that you teach us and help us to uh, worship you uh, undistracted. Uh, just thank you again for this day. Thank you for who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.